Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host, per usual. On the agenda this evening, well, the last pay-per-view event of 2021 took place last night, UFC 269, and that's going to take up the lion's share of what we talk about here, I think, for obvious reasons once we get into that. Oh, man. Uh, that... We got, yeah, we got stuff to uh, kind of hash out here a little bit. <laughs> lot of, there's going to be some serious fallout from this one, uh, for better and for worse. So we'll, we'll break down all of the action from UFC 269. Uh, we will also preview the last event of the year for the UFC. This coming Saturday, the UFC has ES, UFC on ESPN plus 57. So we'll get a full preview of that card. Uh, and then that's kind of it. There's a few... There are a handful of news items attached to results from UFC 269 that I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, more in conjunction with the fights as they come up. Rather than go through the card and then at the end of it say, Dana White says such and such is next, is off, is blah, blah, blah. But there, uh, I haven't been able to find a whole lot of you know individual news about outside stuff. We did get a little bit of a schedule at this event uh, for the UFC, so we'll go over... We'll talk a little bit about that, but most of this is going to be UFC 269. So, then the preview and then plugs, unless something crazy happens while we're recording. Um, so, with that out of the way... Uh, oh, sorry, my other bit of preamble. I've mentioned before that we here at this show, and you all contribute, you all are the reason for this, I think. Uh, had a really good November Uh saw a pretty big spike in growth for the numbers that we usually do. So, uh, I do want to thank you all very much for that again. I've been doing that a lot lately because uh, that kind of growth, I'm not going to wax too poetic about this, I promise, but that kind of growth is fairly, uh, I I wasn't sure I was going to see it, just to be quite candid. I do this because I enjoy it, and I know there's a few people that listen, but uh, hitting a pretty big jump in you know, subscribers and downloads and whatnot. Uh, Wasn't sure that was ever really going to happen here. I've been kind of swinging this axe for a while. And at this point, I've kind of accepted that it's something I do because I enjoy doing it more than maybe because I ever get through the tree, so to speak. But we did hit a bit of a growth spurt, so I'm hoping to continue that. So if you're listening to this, please do give uh, the show a review if you're on Apple Podcasts in particular, a star rating and a review. I don't ask for five stars. I'm not sure this is a five-star show. I know it's not a one-star show. That's all I know. That's the only thing I know for sure. Better than a one-star show. And if you could leave a written review, that would help a lot. So to those of you that have done that, I thank you tremendously for that. Seriously. Uh, anyone that hasn't, again, I'd, I'd like you to, but I can't put a gun to your head and make you do anything. If you're listening on any other particular platform, again, just subscribe, interact with the individual episode if that's at all a thing you can do. So if you're on YouTube, please do like, uh, give us a comment if you're so inclined. Yeah, yeah. So please continue uh, interacting with the product a little bit. Please share it around. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. 
you know, all that good stuff. That helps us a lot here. Okay, so there's the preamble out of the way. If you were ever curious about whether or not I script these, I do not. Um, some of the other stuff I do on occasion, I do write out like either scripts or bullet points, you know, loose, loose stuff. But this is a lot more extemporaneous. All right, moving on. UFC on ES, UFC 269. Uh, getting ahead of myself already. Last pay-per-view of the year, two title fights, 14 total fights. We lost one fight at the weigh-ins. We were supposed to get Matt Schnell and uh, Alex Perez, which is a pretty good fight. Um, Perez missed weight, and then uh, Schnell had some kind of medical issue, so we went down from 15, but they blew through the for all the fight pass stuff, uh, the, you know, the early prelims. They motored through those things which was wound up being a bit ironic because they were pressed pretty hard for time at the end of the other set of the prelims leading into the pay-per-view they were they were hurrying that along uh but your main event for the lightweight title freshly minted champion alex 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 why i don't know why i wanted to go alex Oliveira there way different guy way different guy charles Oliveira. Dubronx defeats Dustin Poirier via rear naked choke uh, a minute and two seconds into the third round. This fight was pretty much as good as uh, we all thought it was going to be, at least for me. I had a great time with this fight watching it. I I try not to root for fighters at this point because, one, they'll break your heart. MMA is too impossible to predict over a long period of time, and we will get to that in just a second. But also, I don't know. It's not that I don't have fighters that I like watching. I do, but I don't. I don't have a very healthy relationship with the sport in the sense that if I root for someone, I've mentioned this before. I do not get as uh, big a thrill out of their success as I do negative out of their loss. So if a fighter I like loses and I've really cared about this, it really bums me out. Whereas if they win, it's not uh, uh, those ra again, the the dials are not even there. And consequently, I have done a lot of pulling back from rooting for individual fighters. That said, I was pulling for Poirier here purely in an emotional sense for one reason, well for a couple of reasons, but one. Uh, Dustin Poirier is one of the few genuinely good human beings that fist fights for money. Uh, they're, they're few and far between. The combat sports in general, MMA and boxing in particular, they don't attract... I mean, Muay Thai too, but if you, if you get like into uh, the setup and, setups in Thailand and whatnot. But you don't really get uh, a lot of great people. And they're not all, you know, scum of the earth and all criminals. I'm not accusing anyone of anything. But there's a reason that a lot of people who spend a lot of time around fighters, be they other fighters or media members or whatnot, there's only a handful of fighters that they kind of go to bat for as far as their uh, character. And Dustin Poirier is one of them. So I wanted to see, you know, a guy that I know is a good human being succeed. I think if Poirier had won, I mean, this might spoil a little bit of my potential year-end list, if Poirier won here, he was going to be my fighter of the year for 2021. Uh, obviously, he lost, so not the case. Uh, I don't mind spoiling this, because there's one event still. 
and neither I don't think any fighter on there has any chance of really making a, either of the main event fighters is really going to make a push for fighter of the year. Unless something weird happens before I write this thing up early 2022, uh, my fighter of the year for 2021 is Kamaru Usman. Uh, you got three fights, you got three title defenses, you got one brutal knockout that's going to be somewhere in my list for knockout of the year. Where exactly, I don't know. And I don't know how everyone else lines up behind Usman at the moment. But he's at the, like I said, he's my fighter of the year for 2021, so... I, but I... If Poirier had won, I would have given him the nod. They would have both been 3-0. and uh, Poirier would have beaten McGregor twice and then capped the year off by winning the title... Usman, 3-0, three title defenses. I would have leaned Poirier because, frankly, I scored his rematch with Covington for Covington. And in a tiebreaker situation, essentially, it comes down to my thoughts on stuff like that that would have kind of nudged Poirier ahead. But, you know, uh, he lost. The other reason I wanted him to win, Justin Gaethje is going to get the next shot at the title most likely. There's a bit of an open question here about uh, Conor McGregor returning and potentially just saying, hey, I want to fight for the belt. I... Uh, I don't want to talk about Conor. Be for a very specific reason when it comes to this. Because I know the UFC might do it. I know they might take a guy who's got a whopping one win at lightweight ever in the UFC. I mean, seriously, Conor McGregor has won one fight at 155 during his entire tenure in the UFC when he beat Eddie Alvarez to win the belt. That's it. His next fight at 155, he was smashed by Khabib. Uh, fight after that, he fought Cerrone at 170. He fights Poirier twice at 155, and he's finished both times. And they might still say, sure, have a title shot because you're Conor McGregor. And I hate that so, so much. I really, really do. So that's a bit of a, an open question as far as things go. But in all probability, again, in all probability. So Gaethje's next. And I really wanted to see current version of Justin Gaethje against Dustin Poirier. I want that rematch. Their first fight was great. I love that fight. Seeing this version of Gaethje against Poirier would have been just hooked that into my veins. Like, that's what I want. That's really, really what I was after. And we're not going to get it. And we might never get it. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. So I was kind of pulling for Poirier and had a good first round. Uh... Uh, he won the round. He hurt Oliveira more than once. Uh, he got a good read on some of... Oliveira had a good read on stopping Poirier's shifting punches, which is what he's hurt a lot of people with. Poirier fights Southpaw, but he's a right-handed... He's right-handed. And one of the things he's been doing a lot of to kind of... And he's hurt a lot of people with this, including Max Holloway. The one punch that he really kind of stung Khabib with was this punch. He starts out in Southpaw, throws the left hand, and he steps through while doing it. Then he throws the left hand now in the lead as a jab, and this kind of steers you to his right, and then he throws a right overhand. He, he 
Uh, he hurt Max with that. He stung Khabib with that. He's here Connor with like that's a punch and that's a sequence he uses a lot. Oliveira had a pretty good read on how to stop that. He closed distance so that Poirier couldn't really step through on his on his shift. And then because Poirier does this while di- while dipping his head as a means of avoiding being countered, threw an uppercut. It was a good way to stop a weapon that Poirier shows off. So Poirier baited that counter and then cracked him with a right hook at one point in the first round and sent him wobbling. Uh, it was a good first round. Second round... The second round, there's a very real argument for Oliveira winning at 10-8 based purely on winning it by a wide enough margin. I didn't quite go there personally, but I don't object to anyone that did. There was an interesting sequence, and like they fight... Like, it needs to be said about the first round. The pace that those two fought at was bonkers. Um... Charles Oliveira, I think that guy knows he can't fight five rounds. And because he knows that, his goal is more to set an unsustainable pace for the first three. Because if he has to fight rounds four and five, I don't know that he can maintain what he does in the first three rounds. Now two On the flip side, you've got to survive the first three rounds with that buzzsaw. He landed good knees to the body. He's really good about using a front kick to the body as well to just kind of harass you and uh, sap your gas tank. His bodywork all fight was really good. Uh, So he deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, His clinch work was good. He really just didn't want to be at the end of punching range. And it's very, very clear because he spent a lot of time in Poirier's face trying to mitigate his punches a little bit by smothering them and then collapsing into a clinch where he can throw elbows and knees. And he was effective with that. He did some nice body work, as I mentioned before. Second round, um, they wind up on the ground fairly quickly. Uh... That was a pretty decent triangle attempt by Oliveira. Poirier escapes. Oliveira switches to an omoplata. It was a triangle or an armbar. Forgive me, I can't remember which off the top of my head. And then he rolls for an omoplata. Now, he doesn't quite get the right position. Uh, the elbow of Poirier gets a little bit too far past the, the leverage point uh, in his hips. But he grabs Oliveira, uh, but he grabs Poirier's hand and his arm to keep him in place. And there was a bit where he kind of got fingers inside the glove. I I would really need some isolated footage to kind of look at that, and I haven't found it yet. Uh, it was so I'm not I'm not going to call it a completely dirty uh, move by Oliveira because I would need evidence for that. But the gloves themselves, I mean, even if you have a perfectly legal grip, the the end of the glove there is just makes it really really hard to kind of get your hand out of it. It's one It's one of the reasons why defending rear naked chokes in MMA is so much easier than uh, jiu-jitsu. If you watch... Even some really good jiu-jitsu guys who fight in mixed martial arts struggle to finish rear naked chokes at times because the gloves just make defending so much easier. Uh, you've got that big thing on the end of their hand that's secured to their hand by, you know, Velcro and tape and you know, the whole nine yards. It's a... Uh, it can make hand fighting really, really difficult. So if and if that's all that was run into there, then you know that that's the fight game. But as Oliveira had a hold of this arm, Poirier's trying to stand up and pull free. 
He doesn't want to be here. And he's trying to pull free. Oliveira starts kind of tipping his weight forward and then scoots, uh, tipping Poirier's weight more forward. And then he scoots towards the back. And at this point, Dustin Poirier does kind of a forward roll and gets uh, and pulls and basically gets Oliveira on top of him in full guard. And I think he was trying to avoid having his back taken. Um, as Oliveira, he, because he didn't show even a, a hint of this, when his arm's straight, he's kind of trying to pull it out, and he's kind of he's fighting over that position. As Oliveira starts moving behind him, Poirier said it, and this is a universal truth, the last place in the world you want Charles Oliveira is on your back. I think he made a calculated risk at that point, uh, a gamble at that point. I cannot afford to have this guy take my back. He's too good from there. So I'm going to... I roll through. He can't get my back. He gets on top. I... The round's gone at this point, more or less. And... Whatever. It's round two. We got three more rounds. I don't want to lose the round, but I'd rather lose the round than lose the fight. Which is a very fair calculation. I, I, I don't begrudge him that at all, especially trying to do it in real time against Charles Oliveira. What he did after he was on his back was a little bit, um, a little bit strange. Because Poirier just, he went to a body triangle from the bottom first. He was trying to stall out, that was pretty clear. Unfortunately, if you're trying to stall out from the bottom and your referee is Herb Dean, and it was for this fight, the first time Herb stands you up for an activity, it takes a while. And to Oliveira's credit, he was good about landing short elbows and fighting to get his posture up and doing enough that even refs with a quicker trigger on resets from that position might still have let him do everything he was doing. This is not me saying Herb Dean's a bad ref. I'm not throwing shade at the guy. I'm saying... Every ref has some idiosyncrasies about stuff that is their their strike zone. Every umpire in baseball is a slightly different strike zone. Same is true for certain positions and certain referees in MMA, for be for better or for worse. And so there's plenty of times when it's both. So Herb was going to let him work, and Poirier never really tried to get Oliveira off of him. He just tried to stall out. Now. Uh, one of the things that he mentioned about the, and this was a lesson he learned from the Khabib fight, there were times when he was fighting too hard to regain his feet against Khabib, kept giving up other positions, kept getting controlled, and kind of figured it would be better to just, I've got full guard, this isn't pleasant because Charles Oliveira is a very good fighter and he's going to elbow me, but I'm not going to spaz out here, and I'm not going to give up I'm not going to give up my back to this guy. Ironic considering how the fight ended, I know, but... It, it's a bit of calculus that's understandable. Uh, I, I, in some respects. I was a little surprised he never tried to get feet on the hips. I mean, he, he never even tried. Now, maybe he he could feel where Oliveira was. and like, okay, if I try to do this, he's going to pass, and I don't want to deal with that. So, I, I'm not saying there's no under, there's no arguments to be made. I'm saying... It was a little bit surprising to see him just bail on essentially like three minutes of that round. And he got elbowed in the face a lot. 
we start the third round, and I... There's not a lot in the third round to talk about, so I have to be kind of careful here. But there's some stuff I noticed. One, I don't think Poirier's legs were quite under him. I don't know if he was gassed out a little bit from B, from having to, from his guard work. You might look at that and go, he didn't really do anything active with his guard. Why would his legs be gassed? Well, what you're doing there uh, on your back in guard, if you've never done this, there is still muscular tension in your legs. You're still squeezing, you're still moving, and it's not pleasant. If his legs were still a little bit compromised, uh, you know, I, that might have contributed. Poirier came out, they traded again. He tried a right hook, but it was a little bit off balance. I guess his legs weren't quite there. Oliveira ducks because Poirier had become a touch predictable. Uh, he was really looking for that right hook, and once you become a bit predictable, he ducks under it, he gets the back, he jumps to the backpack, he fishes for the choke, and eventually gets it. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, that's the fight at that point. Uh, gutted for Poirier. You know, uh, before I move on to Oliver, I want to talk about Poirier for a second, because there's a few things that kind of came out after the, the talking points and whatnot that um, I saw some pushback on a little bit, and I saw... I think there was a a misconception about what some people were saying about this. So let me give you my take. One of the things that was said was this was people and because it's Twitter, people overreact. But that Poirier might this might have been Poirier's last shot at the belt. Now, here's the thing. This is a slightly more nuanced point than can be made on Twitter necessarily, so it's going to take a second here. This is not to say that Dustin Poirier is not a good enough fighter to get back to the title picture. He is, based on all available evidence. If they were to fight again, he might even win a rematch. He might. I would pick Oliveira the second time around, but Poirier's good enough, he might do it. He's, he's a very, very good fighter. Here's the problem. And here's what I think some people mean when they bring this up. One. It's hard to get a rematch in a fight where you were definitively finished. Not impossible, just hard. Especially if it's not some major upset. Again, some of that plays into the co-main event, which we'll get to. But it's harder to do. Not impossible, just more difficult. Dustin Poirier is... Both these guys are 32, but... They're not the same 32. Dustin Poirier's been in some wars. If those are catching up to him, this might have been his last best shot at at getting to the belt because that bill comes due, man. The His fights with Eddie Alvarez were wars. His fight with Gagey was a war. His fight with Dan Hooker was a war. His fight with Max Holloway certainly wasn't easy. And that adds up. That bill comes due for everybody. Now, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next fight for Dustin Poirier. He might have a few more good years left in him. Or at least, not, you know, 
I'm not declaring to you that he's washed up and should retire. But we can't ignore the reality of Dustin Poirier's career and the physical toll that that exacts. Oliveira might have, you know, more fights. But if you look at a lot of Oliveira's career, that man had a long period of time and he got and he fought a lot of suboptimal opposition along the way, to put it kindly. He had a lot of times he just ran through people. Or if he got hurt and finished, it happened in relatively short order. You know, what was the last time Charles Oliveira was in a knockdown dragout war? Maybe this, maybe Chandler. But you know, the Chandler fight ended in the second. This one barely got amended into the third. I don't really think you can quantify those as, you know, wars unless you in MMA, unless you're a real like roadhouse style brawl or you really develop a fight over time and that hasn't happened for him. His losses at times have been bad. Like, that guy got submitted twice in a row by guillotine chokes after he gassed out and got sloppy with his takedowns. He was fighting at featherweight at the time, but it happened. Uh, Max Holloway stopped him in a ra- in less than a round after a neck injury flared up. Like, it's not that the man is you know, this paragon. He's had bad losses, but he's never taken a real beating. You know, He's never been in one of those blood and guts fights. And I think he's probably got more tread on the tires than Poirier as a result. And I think that deserves to be acknowledged. So Poirier, one, might be slowing down. Two, had a good first round, but it's not like what Poirier, what Oliveira did here was some miracle comeback. Oliveira dominated the second round and then finished in the third. I'm not saying there's no case to be made for a potential rematch down the road, I'm saying that's a harder sell than you might think. Third, and this might be the biggest one you have to consider, this is lightweight. You've got Justin Gaethje on deck for Oliveira, logically. You've got early next year, Benil Daryush and Islam Makashev. The winner of that fight should be next. You've got two long winning streaks, seven and nine. Uh, nine for Makashev, seven for Daryush. Whoever wins that fight, however they win it, they're next. They've got next. So, Gaethje or Oliveira, and if that fight happens, logically I'm going with Oliveira. My emotions say Gaethje because I love that guy. But I'm I'm probably going to pick Oliveira, all things considered. Uh, So, that's my inclination at the moment. But they've already got their next fight set up. It's the winner of Makashev and Dariush. So we're already talking about, what, 10 months of that title picture being set. Now, again, the Gaethje fight is not official at the moment, and Makashev and Dariush is not officially a number one contenders fight. This is bit, I'm going based on what I think should happen, and what I think we can all agree would be logical. So what comes after that? Well, if you're Dustin Poirier, you've probably got a fight again between now and then. If you want to stay in the title picture, you can't take a soft touch. You know, you maybe do the fourth fight with Connor. Much as I 
That fight makes a bit more sense now. Maybe the UFC hotshots Connor into the picture to close out 2022. They do stupid stuff like that. You've got Michael Chandler who with a... Are we going to pretend that Chandler with another win might not get back into the title picture? Dan Hooker's dropping back down. You've got guys coming up, too. You've got Gregor Gillespie sitting at 10. I don't know why Conor McGregor's ranked number 9. The man has not won at lightweight since... I need to... I'm going to find that specific number because this annoys me. Look, I'm not saying there's not an argument that Conor McGregor is a good lightweight fighter. I... Because he very well might be. Yeah, okay. November of 2016, Conor McGregor wins a lightweight fight. That's it. That is it. That man has not won at lightweight in over five years. That was November of 16. So, yeah, over five years. He has not had a lightweight win. They're still ranking him as the number nine lightweight contender get bent that's utterly indefensible utterly indefensible look he comes back and he beats a top contender fine rank him appropriately zero wins at lightweight in five over five years no unacceptable <laughs> straight unacceptable and on the back of two finish losses okay look injury in the in the most recent one, fine. Whatever. Still, he got stopped. Uh, but, I mean, Raf look, Rafael Fazayev is at 11. Uh, you've got Armin Saryukin at 13. You want to tell me those guys aren't primed to make a big jump? Uh, you got Tony Ferguson still sitting at 7. We're waiting to see what happens with him. Dan Hooker's probably going back to featherweight. So, these rankings currently are not updated after this event. So they've still got Dustin Poirier sitting at one. And given how stupid some of the rankings are, he might still be there after this event. He shouldn't be, but he might. But I mean, the point there is look at that. I don't know. I don't know why Ferguson's seven. Look, I love Tony Ferguson, man. I've sung that man's praises a lot. But he's lost three in a row. Now, granted, Gaethje, Oliveira, and Tariush, you know, not an easy, not an easy fight amongst those. And I still don't know how he didn't tap out to that armbar Oliveira had him in in the first. I don't know. Like, you've got to be just a total maniac to accept that your arm's going to get busted here. Or the round's going to end. Those were the only two options for him, apparently. You've just got a bunch of guys who are going to start making moves up that division. By the end of 2022, in 12 months, that the top of that division is going to look different. I'm not saying Oliveira won't be champion, necessarily, but... You know, is Tony Ferguson still going to be a top 10 contender at the end of the year? I don't think so. Is McGregor? He shouldn't be now. Hooker? Probably on his way out of the division. Rafael dos Anjos? Uh, I got a hard time seeing... I mean this with all due respect to RDA, who is a 
That man is an all-time great fighter and is never going to get the appropriate respect he deserves for that and is going to constantly be forgotten about. I don't think he's got another run to the belt in him. So we've got guys coming up. There's some great guys who are unranked and lightweight. It's friggin' lightweight. I don't know that uh, Poirier gets another shot. Between his mileage, this fight going the way it did, and the nature of the nature of the division. I might be wrong, and I like Dustin Poirier. I certainly I'm not rooting for him to never get another shot at the belt. That's the other thing though, and this needs to be said. That was his second shot at the lightweight title. And he ran into Khabib the first time, and he ran into Oliveira this time, and that sucks. That really sucks if you're that good, and it takes someone like Khabib or Oliveira to keep you down, and he got close to beating Oliveira. I'm not saying the first round was 10-8 material, it wasn't, but he got, he rocked him more than once. Poirier's punching power is real. Saying that this might have been his last shot at the belt. If you say that, if you're declarative about this, I think you're being overly pessimistic. But I do think it needs to be said that maybe, you know, this might have been it. I tend to think not, but would anyone be surprised? Uh, just, it sucks, but it just needs to be said out loud. Uh, about Charles Oliveira who's probably got Justin Gagey next, and that fight will be nuts. Uh, that's just a crazy fight. Oh, I put up a tweet asking for questions on Twitter about this, and some uh, someone on Twitter did ask uh, what happened to uh, Charles Oliveira's... What happened to Dustin Poirier's gas tank? Uh, he was kind of looking up at the clock in the first round. And this is a guy who's been five rounds multiple times. He's been, you know, in all kinds of wars. Why was he sort of huffing and puffing and then uh, not quite there you know, in the, uh, when the fight ended in the third? A um, couple of things. This this person point. One of the things this person pointed out was the body attacks of Oliveira. They were nasty. Sharp, sharp knees and constantly stabbing him with front kicks. That takes a toll. Um I think his legs suffered a little bit in the third because he was having to do so much of guard retention in the second. And it wasn't scrambly guard retention, but you've got to maintain... Your legs are just kind of straining. Maybe not maximum, but they're not comfortable. So I think that played a role. Um, I don't give too much credence to someone looking at the clock the way other people do. Under a few set of conditions. One being if it's the first round. Uh, I I tend to think sometimes people just... Fighters just need to get their bearings that maybe they don't have. Second is uh, the pace of that first round. Uh, fighters can... Especially like very experienced fighters. They've got a very good internal clock about the intervals of... About the round intervals. Uh, so you fi- you find a boxer and you ask him to give you, I say start, you say stop when three minutes are up. They can be very cl- they can be pretty accurate to that. Like they'll they'll be accurate. 
there was that kind of clip of Tony Ferguson cutting an interview, cutting his own interview at about the eight minute mark saying, I know it's been about eight minutes because I know my rounds. Yeah, fighters can do that. Uh, but a lot of their internal clocks when we when it comes to the fight itself are predicated on uh, a lot of internal metrics. Some of that has to do with volume output. Uh, some uh, that that in particular, like I want to do X amount per round. So when I hit certain milestones, I tend to think maybe I'm getting towards the end of a round. Anytime you see a fighter that has to fight really outside of their pace and outside of their comfort zone in that respect, you might find them looking up at the clock just because they've hit certain markers internally that usually signal I'm about here. And they wish to confirm that because things don't look necessarily like that's the case. The pace these two fought at in that first round was, I said this, I said this at the start of that this fight review, that was nuts. I think Poirier fighting at that pace hit some internal markers about, I should be about here, and double-checked it. Now, whether that's a good sign or a bad sign, I don't know. But I think that's a bit more what happened. Uh, so... That's my thought there. I And I don't think that Poirier's gas tank is completely abandoning him, but I think he threw a lot in that first round. He threw a lot of headshots. And they did it at just a, a ridiculous pace. Neither guy usually fights at that pace. Oliveira upped his pace a bit for this fight, I think very, very deliberately, to try and counteract uh, Poirier. So, my two cents on that. Uh, so about Charles Oliveira, you know, that man is on a great run. Now, it's his current winning streak is a little bit... I mean, it's long. You know, dude last lost in 2017 when Paul Felder elbowed him through the mat. Uh, that was a great win by Felder, by the way. If you haven't seen that fight... Uh, well, he hasn't lost since then. He's won, what, nine? Yeah, this was 10. It was 9 coming into this. He's won 10 fights in a row. And if you want to look at the first, you know, 3 to 4 in that group, you know, Clay Guida in 2018, yeah, that's comical. Christos Yago, so I don't even think he's with the UFC anymore. Jim Miller in 2018, bear in mind Miller kneebarred Oliveira several years ago. That was Oliveira's... Is that his first loss in the UFC? Yeah, it was. That was his first loss ever in 2010. Miller in 18, you know, certainly not the same guy. You know, David Tamer, Nick Lentz. I mean, I don't know why he fought Nick Lentz as many times as he did, but hey. You know, so there was a bit of rebuilding there. We fought some guys who were a little bit past it, a little bit washed. After that, though, I mean, in 2020, he fought Kevin Lee and Tony Ferguson and beat them both. In 21, he's beaten Michael Chandler and Poirier and finished them both. That four-fight stretch, even if you ignore the six fights before, that four-fight stretch is impressive. You know, not a lot of guys finish Dustin Poirier. Uh, it's really rare. I don't... He should... By all logic, he should have finished Tony Ferguson. Like, <laughs> that still doesn't make sense. But to have this... His only decision in, that, in his current stretch was the Tony Ferguson fight. It was just a, 
Tony Ferguson's just a maniac. Even when he's losing, he's a maniac. And I mean that as a compliment. He's on an all-time great run at the moment. You, know, you don't see 10-fight winning streaks at lightweight all that often. I mean, winning consistently in the UFC to begin with is hard. You, do you know how many people even get to a five-fight winning streak? I mean, it's hard. Dude's got ten. His last four fights have been... You know, say what you will about Kevin Lee no longer being in the UFC, but it's not an easy fight. Kevin Lee actually said something interesting on Twitter ahead of this fight. And I, he said that Charles Oliveira was the most skilled fighter he ever fought. And you look at some of the guys Lee was in the cage with. He fought Tony Ferguson. Uh, he fought Rafael Dos Anjos. He fought Edson Barboza. He fought Gregor Gillespie. He fought you know, Michael Chiesa. Uh, he fought a lot of talented fighters. And for him to single out Oliveira as the most skilled, uh, you know, that, that says something. So, Oliveira's just on a really, really good run. I, him and Justin Gagey, I, I don't want to spend too much time speculating about this fight because I want to preview it appropriately if that fight comes up. But, Charles Oliveira is a dangerous, dangerous man. He's got good striking and a good pace around it. His whole game is a bit more designed to incentivize you to make mistakes, let him close distance, and then drown you with his exceptional jiu-jitsu. That guy for MMA has... Like, that's a trump card, right? When you're that good at jiu-jitsu and you can make it work that consistently... That's just a bullet in your, that's not just a bullet in your chamber. You know, a, a lot of guys in MMA are okay at jiu-jitsu. You know, could they smoke me or you, depending on who you are? I, I assume so. But, you know, what does it, how does it manifest itself in the cage when they fight? You know, you don't see a lot of great submission artists. They're kind of rare. Oliveira has made that a dangerous weapon for himself. And, I mean, if he fights Justin Gaethje, you know Gaethje's going to be kicking at his calf, and Gaethje hits really hard. Like, some of the punches that uh, Poirier caught Oliveira with, if Gaethje catches him with those, I mentioned Poirier's punching power is real. Gaethje hits harder than Dustin Poirier. I don't feel there's a lot of... I don't feel that's a controversial sentiment. If Gaethje's able to tag Oliveira the way Poirier was, I think he'll go to sleep. Or at least be so badly hurt he can force the finish. But as soon as those two tie up, assuming they do, like, if that hits the mat at all, what's Justin Gaethje going to do to Charles Oliveira on the ground? Uh, I mean, the skill differential there is just enormous. I don't know where his I don't know ultimately where Oliveira's title reign will go or where it will end you know if he if he gets by Gaethje for the sake of argument you gotta fight the winner of Daryush and Makashev next 
I don't know what him and Islam Makashev looks like as a fight. I'm, that's not to dismiss Darius's chances of winning. That's just to say, will Makashev be the guy to beat him? Would you be shocked if he was? I mentioned this to a friend of mine, and I think he, you know, for a long time, this has become a more popular sentiment lately. For a long time, you know, and I was part of this, we all wanted to see Tony Ferguson and Khabib. Because we thought Tony might have been the guy. At this point, I don't... At this point, I think it's fair to assume there was never really a point when Tony Ferguson would have been a reliable... The reliable guy to beat Khabib Nurmagomedov. There might have been certain points in their careers when it would have been closer, but... Uh, for whatever reason, you know that never quite came together... And it's a darn shame because I wanted to see that fight. We all wanted to see that fight. But, but, might not the real interesting fight for Khabib have been Charles Oliveira? Now, there was no reason to make that assumption until very, very recently. Let's be clear about that. But, you want a guy who's got lights out, you know, killer jujitsu, a good bottom game? You know, sharpen the clinch. Not a, you know, it's... Oliveira might have been the guy. I would not have picked him. Even now. Well, like, you take the best version of Charles Oliveira, which I think is the current version, against the best version of Khabib. I still favor Khabib. I think Oliveira would be a bit too willing to try and play guard. And I think he would take too much damage along the way trying to get some of his game working against Khabib. My, that's my hunch. But, don't tell me that, as things currently stand, that's not maybe the fight you'd be most interested in. Now, we're not going to get it, and say la vie, man, such is life. But that might have been the fight... That's the fight I don't think anyone realized we wanted until the possibility of it happening was no longer there. So, congratulations to Oliveira. He keeps keeps the belt, gets his first title defense. Uh, good performance. He, uh, he again, kind of persevered through adversity in ways he hadn't really before. I still wonder about his gas tank. I think that's a pretty... I think that's a question mark. I also think, and this is something that both of his last fight, his, his last two opponents have maybe not exploited uh, or you know, brought up. Um, Dustin Poirier threw 96% of his strikes in this fight to the head of Charles Oliveira. That's, I mean, when all you have to do is defend one part of your body, it's not the most difficult thing in the world. It's still not fun when Dustin Poirier is, you know, throwing rocks at your skull. But if you're not worried about your leg or you're not worried about your body, uh, you know, that, that does make things a little bit easier. And as far as, you know, you know 96, you know, I'm, and I just want to confirm this. Uh, Michael Chandler in his, in his fight, okay, he threw a little bit more. Chandler threw 73% to the head. 
which not as much as Poirier, but still, that's an overwhelming majority. And then 20% to the bo- sorry, 20% to the body. Chandler will go a little bit more to the body, but I wonder how old everyone. I think there's a bit of a reputation around Oliveira that needs to be addressed. I think you're. I think if you want to sap him and to get him to a point where he might break mentally, you're not going to do it by hitting him in the head at this point. I think he's figured out a way to deal with that. And God bless him for doing so. Because that was the rap on him for a long time. Was He was a front runner, and if you put adversity in his face, he would crumble. That's not the case anymore. I wonder about his gas tank, and I wonder how he might respond to some serious body work or serious leg work. Uh... So, we're, Gaethje will answer one of those questions. That man will chop your leg up if you give him half a chance. So, so I, I'm curious about that, but uh, at the moment, he's still the champion, and I think he deserves to be favored in his next fight. Uh, whether or not I pick it for him or against him is not always a uh, matter of the odds, but... He's on a great run, and it deserves to be acknowledged. You know, he, he's got to deal with you know the, the specter of Khabib, and he had to overcome here. You know, a lot of people, myself included, thought Dustin Poirier is the best lightweight in the world, and he seems to finally be moving past that. So, you know, good on him. Curious to see how his next title fight goes, and looking forward to it. All right, our co-main event. Juliana Pena defeats Amanda Nunes via rear naked choke, 326 of the second. You know, I said this when I previewed this show. If Nunes keeps fighting, somebody's going to beat her. It's inevitable. That's true of everyone. You fight long enough, you lose. You know, Khabib got out before that happened. Floyd Mayweather managed his career and cherry-picked his opponents in such a way that he was able to avoid it and was certainly... Lest that sound like the man was not the best boxer of his generation. On top of that, he absolutely was. But that's... That doesn't happen very often. You know, you fight long enough, you lose. Fight long enough, you have a bad night, somebody else has a great night. Something goes wrong in prep. You know... Who knows? I didn't pick Pena here. I don't know anyone that picked Juliana Pena to win. I really don't. And I think even if people picked her to win, they would not have they would not have envisioned the fight going the way it did. Uh, and I'm not even upset about getting this one wrong. Sometimes like, I got down on myself, for example, about the Holly Holm beating Ronda Rousey thing. Because all, all the evidence that that was going to happen was very clear. That was very, very clear. That's not the case here. All right. I mean, last year, Juliana Pena got submitted, choked out by Jermaine Durandamy. The only woman Jermaine Durandamy has ever submitted, Juliana Pena. So I am I am not beating myself up over this one in that particular respect. Um, first round, all Nunes gets into a bit of a brawl. And I uh, here's where I knew this might sound weird, but hear me out because I mentioned this last week. 
I didn't know, even looking at this moment, I did not think Amanda Nunes was going to lose. Let me be clear about that. But, it was the moment when I went, okay, this is not going to quite go the way her last few fights have gone. I said last week, watch what happens the first time Amanda Nunes punches someone in the face. Their reaction will tell you a lot. Because a lot of the women that she's hit, their eyes get big, and they don't know what to do. In the first round, Juliana Pena sits down, uh, Nunez sits Pena down with a right hand to the face. Uh, commentary erroneously called it a jab, because Daniel Cormier is not very good at his job. Sits her down, full punch, right on, again, right to the face. And look what Juliana Pena did. She did not panic. And that that's your big indicator right there that okay, this is not going to this is not going to be a blowout. And Nunez gets on top and spends the rest of the round mostly in top position, not doing a lot of damage. Second round, Pena induces this sloppy brawl. I mean if someone came into your gym striking like Pena did here, you might throw them out. I, I exaggerate because, of course, you're not going to throw anyone out as paying. But you get my point. She was flaring her arms on every punch, and she's not moving her feet all that well. Doing a little bit of shoulder rolling, but I think her face got busted up. It's not like Nunes didn't hit her. Her left eye was swollen up pretty badly. Like, she got hit. And to her credit, Pena is very durable, not only mentally, but physically. She, she didn't break mentally. Her body didn't shut down on her. And that's a big deal. You know, that is certainly not nothing. And Nunez gasses herself out in this stupid, sloppy brawl. Gets forced to the clinch. Luke gives up her back. She gets choked out without hooks in. Like, she goes to the turtle. She's just done. And even without hooks, like, there's a myriad of ways to defend yourself in that position. She goes to none of them and taps out 326 of the second. Uh, I mean, she got hit. Again, they, they hit each other a lot, you know, but look whose face was worse off. I mean, Nunez clearly hits harder. She just got hit enough and then wasted so much energy throwing the... There was no diversity in her offense. Nunes isn't the biggest kicker in the world, but she usually will sprinkle them in. And she just, all right, here comes the right hand over and over and over again. And she threw it so hard and so often that she gassed herself out. This was, if you want to know why certain people, myself included, were looking at Shev Valentina Shevchenko as possibly being... You know, someone who should be able to beat Amanda Nunez, it's because we kind of thought she might induce this. Nunez's gas tank is still a bit of an issue. It always has been. She found ways to work with it, either by forcing the fight to be contested at a pace that she knows she could keep, or just by uh, her opponents being compliant in that particular aspect, or you know, getting them out of there fairly quickly. You know, that... If you can't fight in the fifth round, it's not a big deal if you're stopping everyone, you know, in the second, right? But it's it's always been something of a weakness, and it was really on display here. She just didn't like getting hit too much, 
Uh, couldn't find a good counter and seemed to just kind of check out mentally and physically. Uh, one of the biggest upsets you're going to find. I don't know that it, I don't know where it ranks statistically because odds determine how big an upset is. And don't get me wrong, Nunez was like a minus 1100 favorite by the time they got into the cage. Like it was big. There might have been bigger, but, uh, I think more if you look at, like, expectations, it's still not the biggest. If we're talking just not numerically, right, like not what the actual odds were, but if we just want to talk about expectations, this still might not be the big, uh, you know, this is not the biggest. It's up there. I think a bigger upset if we're talking expectations. You know, I watched Matt Sarah beat George St. Pierre. That's a thing that happened, and I was watching when it did. And G Matt Sarah TKOing George St. Pierre in the first round is still one of the Sarah winning was a would have been a shocking result no matter how he did it. Stopping GSP with strikes inside of five minutes. Nobody. I mean Matt Sarah's coach. That's it. Nobody. Nobody saw that coming. I remember... You guys may not know the biggest... up. Well, like I think one of the biggest numerical upsets in history by the odds might still be the biggest. You may not remember this fight even. I, I imagine a bunch of you weren't even fans at the time. Not to be the old man telling you about back in the day, but little Nog, Antonio Rogerio Noguera got knocked out by a fellow named Remy Sokaju, who was in the UFC for like five fights, not too long after this. That, I think statistically, is still the biggest upset in MMA history. Because Little Nog was one of the best light heavyweights in the world, and this nobody beat the brakes off of him in short order. That, when I say knocked him out, that was not a long fight was a very, very short fight, in point of fact. Let me look that up real fast. Uh, I can't remember exactly how long it was. I mean, it was... Um, yeah, in 23 seconds, in 2007. Bear in mind, to this point, Noguera, again, little nog, had one loss to Vladimir Matyushenko, long winning streak, one loss to Shogun in the 2005 Grand Prix. The one that Shogun would go on to win. He was coming off a win over Alistair Overeem, where he made Overeem's corner throw in the towel. And Sokaju, who is... Uh, in his fourth professional fight... And by the way, the fight before this, at a WEC event in 2006, knocked out in the first round by Glover Teixeira. Shout out to our current light heavyweight champion back in 2006 in the WEC. <laughs> like, that, I still think, is the biggest upset in, uh, numerically, again, by the odds, in MMA history, because, like, what the... But, you know, this happens in MMA. You know, somebody gets on a run, and sometimes the end is somewhat foreseeable. I I scored the second fight between Demetrius Johnson and Henry Cejudo for Demetrius Johnson, 
But is it really that shocking that Henry Cejudo was the guy to do it? You know, is that shocking? Not especially. When Rampage knocked out Chuck Liddell, was that shocking? Okay, maybe you didn't expect him to do it in the first round, but Rampage was a top-tier fighter. That shouldn't shock you. Uh, George never let you. Chris Wyden beating Anderson Silva. There were rumblings from people about Weidman being maybe the guy to do it. Now, was it still shocking to see Anderson Silva lose? I was watching that fight live, too, you know? Yeah, I didn't see that. I didn't see that one coming, but is it... Was it completely out of left field? Sarah beating GSP, left field. Holly Holm beating Ronda Rousey. Should that be that surprising? Not really. Uh, Pena beating Nunes. Should this be that surprising? Yeah, it kind of should. A little bit out of left field here. Here's the thing about Pena when it comes to this. This was the first time she'd fought twice in a calendar year since 2015. Right? Like, (laughs) she fought twice in 15, once in 16, once in 17, didn't fight in 18, once in 19, once in 2020, and then twice in 2022. I mean, she missed all of 2014 with that terrible knee injury. She's, (laughs) there wasn't a huge body of work here to draw on to make you think she was going to be the one. But sometimes that's what happens. Amanda Nunes... Just throwing this out there. Again, long winning streak. If we wanted to go numerically. Um, how many fights was that in a row? I'm just curious. Um, Here's the most wins by a woman in the UFC. Uh, 12? 12 fights in a row. Double check that real fast. One, two. Yeah, 12. She won that bantamweight title from Misha Tate at UFC 200 in 2016. That woman held that belt for five, not just 2016, July of 2016. She held that title for five and a half years. Right? That's ridiculous. Those kinds of title reigns in MMA are extremely rare for a reason. I mean, her run is one of the all-time great runs in MMA. Now, it's somewhat counterbalanced by the level of opposition. You know, The second fight with Valentina Shevchenko, I thought I scored that fight for Shevchenko. She followed that up by beating Raquel Pennington. was wildly overmatched. She bounced up to featherweight a handful of times. But that's that's still a... I mean, what's the softest touch on her resume? Either Felicia Spencer or Megan Anderson? You know, when she... In 2000, like, she lost in 2014, prior to this fight, her last loss, 2014 to Kat Zingano. She beats up Zingano for two rounds, gasses in the third, gets stopped. 
The fight after that, she basically sends Shayna Baszler into professional wrestling. Uh, I think that was Baszler's last fight. No, she had one more. That was her last UFC fight. Uh, she leg kicked her into. She leg kicked Shayna Baszler out of the UFC. She had one fight at Deep, and then a couple of years later, and then was on to professional wrestling full time, which she seems to be quite happy doing. And I know because I cover professional wrestling, so I've seen her stuff. So I, and I certainly have nothing. I have no ill will you know, towards her as far as that goes. But she sent her out. She beat Sarah McMahon pretty handily. She uh, got by Valentina Shevchenko despite giving up the third round in their fight. Then she wins the belt. Like, there's not really a an easy fight. Some of them we think that way because the level because she's so much better. And sure, Felicia Spencer who just retired uh, this last week. Or Megan Anderson, okay. Women's featherweight is not a real division. But, uh, okay, Raquel Pennington, yeah, all right, horribly overmatched. But she knocked out Chris Cyborg. She knocked out Holly Holm. She beat Jermaine Durandamy a second time. Uh, Okay, again, the Shevchenko fight, close. But she made enough of a case to win. That's a great run. She's still the featherweight champion. I don't know what they're going to do with that. I don't... It's one of the things about this fight. Um, look, you want to know the biggest loser coming out of this fight? Might be Kayla Harrison, who was cage-side for this fight. She's in contract negotiations. Earlier this week, the UFC said they would like to bring her in. Kayla can make 145. It's not an easy cut, but she can do it. She's done it before. Uh... They were pretty clearly looking at doing Kayla Harrison and Amanda Nunes. And, you know, Kayla Harrison might have been able to do this to Amanda Nunes. Just throwing it out there. Uh, That fight might be gone. They might do an immediate rematch. Now, that would be based solely on Amanda Nunes and her body of work. Right? Because you lose and you lose this badly... This was a pretty bad loss. That tends not to go to be to warrant an immediate return match, but you've got her as. Uh, but you do have Nunes as this, you know, great champion, and sometimes, sometimes, you, uh, fighters with this with this body of work will get an immediate rematch. I. They might do that. It's not like someone else is beating down the door here. We look at the rest of the top rankings here. You've got Holly Holm sitting at one. Somebody got cut because everybody bumped up. I forget who it was, so forgive me. Uh, Erdine Aldana. This has Peña at three, but obviously she's not the champion. So if we if we substitute her as champion and drop Nunes to one, Holm, you know, Holm and Aldana drop one, and then... Aspen Ladd, Ketlin Vieja, Yana Kunitskaya, Misha Tate, Raquel Pennington, Sarah McMahon... Like, Who's getting stepped on if they do an immediate rematch? I'm just throwing it out there. I mean... Where did the UFC pull in these rankings? I assume they pulled Jermaine Durandamy. That's kind of what I'm thinking here. I don't think she's been cut, but I might have to double-check that. Uh, Either way, neither here nor there. Um... 
we might get an immediate rematch, and I can see the argument for doing so. Here's something else that needs to be brought up. Uh, and look, if they... I'm just going to throw this out there. If they have a rematch, Amanda Nunes might win. Right? I might still favor her to win, quite candidly. Uh, sometimes you have your worst night when someone else has their best night. And I think there's a degree of that that went on here. A degree. I'm not trying to say that Juliana Pena didn't deserve to win. She overcame serious physical adversity, punched Amanda Nunes in the face a bunch of times, and submitted her. Like, there's there's not any argument that Juliana Pena is not the deserving victor here in terms of the fight. I only bring that up because I think it's important to understand, you know, the full breadth here. And look, Pena might win the rematch if they have it. That, at this point, that shouldn't be terribly shocking. But in addition to the loss to Jermaine Durandamy, where she was submitted, Juliana Pena has another submission loss on her record to Valentina Shevchenko. If Nunez doesn't want an immediate rematch or they can't do it in a timely fashion, which might be the case, this might open the door to Shevchenko coming back to bantamweight, and I would favor her to beat Pena again, candidly. And we might get Shevchenko as a, a simultaneous 2-8 world champion. I'm just throwing that out there. That is not at all outside the realm of possibility as things currently stand. I might have favored Shevchenko to beat Nunes in a th hypothetical third fight that Dana White had been crapping all over all week. Uh, Shevchenko in a rematch against Pena? I wouldn't even have to... I don't mean to dismiss Pena's chances of winning entirely. She's a, she's a pretty big bantamweight. And Shevchenko is not. But... They fought once. I'm not saying we'd get a carbon copy of the first fight. You never do. But I would favor Shevchenko, as far as that goes. Now, that might be moot again. We might just get a straight immediate rematch in short order. Who knows? But, uh, big, big upset there. Big upset for Pena. So, kudos to her in that respect. Uh, have to wait and see what happens next. I think the biggest loser was Kayla Harrison, who... Uh, she, look, Kayla can't fight at 135. That I don't think that's physically possible for her. Uh, she can make 145. She's done that once or twice. I know once. But... You know, Nunez losing here might sour the entire marketplace on a potential featherweight title fight between those two. It might tie up Nunez in an immediate rematch in a way that makes bringing Kayla Harrison in at all just kind of unrealistic. Uh, really feel bad for Kayla Harrison here. I was, I was hoping to see her in the UFC because I, if look, I don't know how hard. If you're listening to this podcast, I think you're a fairly hardcore MMA fan. Uh, Kayla Harrison, if you haven't seen a lot of her work, it, that woman is a wrecking ball. Uh, straight wrecking ball. So, I was hoping to see her in the UFC, and I was hoping to see her in Nunes. I I would not have picked her to beat Nunes, but I would have given very serious consideration to that. Very serious. Uh, 
So we'll have to wait and see what happens on a few of these fronts. Um, I don't know how much longer Amanda Nunes is still going to be fighting. She's been doing this for a long time. She's been champion for a long time. She's got a family, uh, a daughter. Like, There's a lot of stuff there, you know? Nobody does this forever. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see on that. Uh, she might, look, Pena might have to beat Amanda Nunes twice. And boy, is that a tall ask. Uh, a tall order. Big, big, big ask to do that twice. So we'll have to wait and see on that. But probably your upset of the year in MMA. Uh, they, they had one of the awards, like, the night, the, the week, this week, like the World MMA Awards, I think, uh, where, I know some of the winners, uh, the guy who stopped Demetrius Johnson got upset of the year, uh, over in one, and frankly, he should thank his lucky stars that his fight, that, like, that, that ceremony took place before this event, because, uh, would not... If you do upset of the year as an award for 2021, I don't think there's a look. There's other upsets. Other, look, I mean, Demetrius Johnson getting stopped was a non was a big upset. Uh, technically speaking, Sergio Pettis knocking out Kyoji Horiguchi was a pretty big upset. I don't think there's a bigger upset all year than Peña over Nunes. I don't do upset of the year as a category for my year-end awards, but if you do. Uh, so, yeah, it was crazy. That was a pretty crazy fight for as long as it lasted, too. So, uh, yeah, that was your co-main event. Juliana Pena, new women's bantamweight champion. We'll see how long she holds on to it. Uh, next up, I don't have a lot to say here. Jeff Neal defeats Santiago Ponzinibbio via split decision. 29-28 for Ponzinibbio. 29-28 for Neal. 30-27 for Neal. I was 30-27, Neal. I don't hate 29-28 either way. The first two rounds kind of sucked. This was not a very good fight. I have gone so long just talking about... I hope you'll all bear with me, but those first two fights were a lot to unpack, and I do still have other stuff to talk about here, so I've got a long one. If you And look, if you're one of those people who uses this podcast to, like, put your kids to sleep, this one will do it. <laughs> we're going to be here for a bit. Uh, flyweight. This was a rough one. Um, Kai Kara France defeats Cody Garbrandt via TKO punches, 321 of the first. Man. Man, oh man. Um, I'll say this about Garbrandt at flyweight. He didn't seem to have a problem with the weight cut. Um, he looked a little drawn out on the scale, but he looked much better than TJ Dillashaw did making the same cut, right? Even when he, uh, when Garbrandt was at bantamweight, it's not like you, uh, you look at TJ at bantamweight, and you want like there's no way that man could safely make flyweight, and he made flyweight. But I think we can all agree. I mean, by his own admission, he needed to like his body was not responding well. And he, look, whether you choose to believe him about that being the first and only time he's used EPO. I leave that to your personal judgment. But him saying that he needed it because his hematocrit started bottoming out during his weight cut, I'll buy that. Like, I, I will buy that his weight cut was so severe that his body started having that adverse reaction. Garbrandt didn't quite seem to have that. So, 
I'm not, I don't know that the man has a deep future at flyweight, but the weight cut does not seem to be prohibitive. For Dillashaw, it clearly was. For Garbrandt, I don't think the weight cut is going to be the big hurdle here, necessarily. It's not a great thing, but I I don't think that's the prohibitive issue. Um, Garbrandt's a bit chinny, and that's been true for a while. Now, I don't mean that he has a complete glass chin. I don't think that's true. He's eat, there are some cases where he ate pretty decent shots and stayed upright. You know, he, Pedro Munoz, he and Pedro bombed on each other, and it took a bit before he went down. You know, the head kick that TJ landed on him in their first fight. You know, if the guy had a compromised chin, he would have been out from that kick. He got up and he fought back. So when I say he's a little bit chinny, it's it's not that he goes to sleep easy. It's more that he gets rocked. And I heard Luke Thomas say this, and I think it's true. I hadn't thought about it in this context. Cody Garbrandt gets hit. It's not that he gets hit a lot. And people can find him. It's that when he gets hit, it's clean. Right? Look at the punch Kai Kara-France landed, landed on him to start this whole thing. That right hand was clean on the button. Whether you've got a good chin as an objective metric or not, that punch from Kai Kerta France to any flyweight, if he hit Davis and Figueredo, he's got... Davis and Figueredo's kind of got a cinder block head. Right? That guy, I don't know how many times I've seen him ever hurt with strikes. If you just let him hit you... If you let Kai Kerta France hit you like that, even if you've got a world-class chin, you're still going to have a bad reaction to that punch from that guy landing in that way. The fact that Garbrandt's chin maybe, you know, isn't made of granite, it adds to it, but it's so far down the list of priorities in this respect that I... And it really is. like, There's so much else going wrong that... The fact that his chin is a bit comp is not the best is not the biggest thing you have to worry about here. That's is kind of the point. Uh, he's still got power, you know. He's a good wrestler. Uh, he tried to take. I actually liked the takedown he shot on Carlo France here after he got hurt. It was fairly well timed. The angle was a little bit off, and Carlo France you sprawled and reset and eventually got him out of there. Uh, I don't know what the future holds for Cody Garbrandt at this point. I don't know that many people who have had this precipitous a fall after such a remarkable fight. Well, let's rewind the clock here for, uh, I mean, a number of years at this point. Good grief. But let's go back to, what was it, 2016, I think? Uh, yeah, let's go back to 2016 real fast. So, December of 16, so almost exactly, exactly five years. Was I, hang on, was, was my math off? No, June of six, four and a half years for Nunes? I might have been, if you're screaming at me that my math is wrong, hang on, just give me a second on the Nunes thing. 
Yeah, if she went July of 16 to December of 21, that is five and a half years. Right? Yeah, because we'd already passed the five-year mark, which was July of this year. Okay. Still okay on that. So let's go back to just about five years ago. Almost exactly five years ago. In December of 2016, Cody Garbrandt, 10-0, mostly a slugger, fights Dominic Cruz and puts on one of the most spectacular performances you will ever see to claim the bantamweight title. I mean, it's an utterly remarkable fight. And then fights TJ Dillashaw November, over a year later. He had some kind of injury, I think. So November, of, almost a year later, so not over a year. November of 17. What did he have, right? He had some kind of an injury, I think. Um, yeah, he had a back injury. Really unfortunate. Uh, the first round of Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw at UFC 217 is just a continuation of that previous fight, basically. He's... I don't think Dillashaw lands a clean blow all round. Shut, he shut TJ Dillashaw down. Dillashaw just cracks him with the head kick in the second round, is able to get the finish. And it's all downhill from there. He loses three in a row, loses a rematch with Dillashaw, gets knocked out by Pedro Munoz in 19, gets a win in 2020, knocking out Rafael Asensau. Then loses to Garbrandt, now loses here in his flyweight debut. Like, after, I don't know that many people that have had that that great a performance. And then, so if you give him 30 minutes, right? 25 against Cruz, first five against Dillashaw. That version of Cody Garbrandt at bantamweight might be unbeatable. I... I, and I absolutely mean that. But then it all comes falling apart so quickly. Here's one of the problems I think that... I think he switched camps a bit ago. As he was Team Alpha Male, you know, forever. Um, I don't think he fights out of there anymore. He does some of his work there. He also does some at um, Mark Henry's MMA. Um the guy who does uh, you know, Frankie Edgar and the East Coast kind of super friends group. He, he kind of does work between the two camps. And I think, quite sadly, the guy who really kind of made Cody Garbrandt what he is, what he was, was Justin Buckholtz. And Buckholtz got... Uh, when, he, when Buckholtz left Alpha Male... And Garbrandt stayed. Uh, I don't think he's ever found another coach who was able to, who understood him, who could communicate with him, and you, you found that kind of harmony. I just don't think he's found it. Uh, and I think that's a real problem. Uh, I, I don't know what he does. He might try another flyweight fight. 
but he's a he's what one he is what one in five in his last six now yeah you know crazy to think that you know five years ago he beats Dominic Cruz and on this night he gets violently stopped in the first round and Cruz who we'll talk about when we get in a minute has a truly stunning in in many respects a truly wonderful performance of his own to remind everyone that Dominic Cruz is still someone in the bantamweight division that you need to pay attention to uh, biggest win of Kai Kara France's career by a mile even with Garbrandt being you know damaged goods for want of a better word you know what was his biggest win before this uh See. He's fought at Adam White. Huh. I mean, not often, but Carter France has fought at 115. Uh, he returned to the UFC. He got into the UFC at Fly when he's been there, but, uh, you know, what a split decision. He lost to Brandon Moreno, the current champion, in 2019. You know, if you remove Cody Garbrandt, again, what's his biggest name value win? You know, I. I don't think you. I don't think there's a great one there. You know, they're, they're quality wins when you get into you know, you're building your you're building yourself up, right? You know, beating Holly and Paiva, Mark De La Rosa, Tyson Nam, Jose Rio Bontarine, like those aren't bad wins in the in some kind of like oh, well that that you know that win aged like milk. I mean, you don't have that, but you don't have a standout biggest win of your career. The, the biggest fight prior to this probably would be would wind up being the Brandon Moreno fight. And again, Moreno won current flyweight champion. Uh, you know, this was a big win for Carter France, who seems to finally be finding himself in the UFC. You know, he knocked out Jose Bontorin in the fight before this. Stops Garbrandt here. He's going to be due... Where was he at flyweight? Second... He was ranked coming into this. He was number six. He already has a loss to Brandon Royville, but... Um, God, they're doing a third fight. They're doing the trilogy fight between Romero and Figueredo in a move I don't like. Um, let's ask our asker up here. He's going to fight someone like... Look, he's going to fight someone like Alessandre Pantoja, currently at three. Um, Perez was on this card against Schnell. Perez currently sitting at four. But he's gonna fight someone near the top. This was a this was a high-profile win for him. So, uh, really good win for him. And I said about Garbrandt, I don't know, man. There's so much. And I, there's just so much there. I don't even know how I would start. I mean, I, I don't pretend to be a coach here. You know, I'm I'm certainly not good enough. But I don't really know even where you could kind of start with him. Um, his last few fights, he's been gun shy. Look at the amount of backing up he does. You know, the amount of circling. It's it used to be that if you hit him, he got really aggressive. You know, Buckles would talk all the time about trying to get him to stay 
centered, to stay calm. And that being one of the keys to getting the best out of him. Now he just seems... It's just hard to get him to really kind of... He, he might be a little bit... Um, uh, what's the word? I hate to say he might be washed. But... If you're... Not really... You don't have to be an aggressive fighter to be, you know, in your prime. But if you're not willing to be the aggressor, at least some of the time... And if you're not willing to throw a whole lot, I don't know. I don't know, man. His his career is going to go down more like a shooting star than anything else. Something bright and amazing for a brief period of time. I, uh, that's just kind of where I think we are. All right, and kicking off the main card, Sean O'Malley defeated Holly and Paiva via TKO punches. 442 of the first. I don't have a lot to say here. Um, Sean O'Malley is, there was some quote that, uh, what's that I saw Dana say? Compared someone else to, like, like someone else com uh, was compared to Sean O'Malley. He's, he's kind of throwing him under the bus a little bit. Because O'Malley is, he's taken a very, I'm not, let me be clear about what I'm about to say. I'm not asking you to be a fan of the guys. If he rubs you the wrong way, he rubs you the wrong way. I don't care. But his stance at the moment is I get paid the same if I fight a contender or I fight a tomato can. So why would I want to fight a contender? <laughs> and, you know, he's not wrong. Uh, I, I think it needs to be acknowledged. He's not wrong. Uh, his paycheck is the same. So he, he's trying to angle for more money. And I don't blame him. Every fighter on the UFC roster is significantly underpaid. I've been over that a lot. So I'm not going to rehash it here. Uh, this will probably get him ranked. Paiva was, I think, 15 coming into this, which was a dubious ranking for Paiva to begin with, but uh, such is life. Uh, I mean, he, he did the thing after his last fight where, you know, Everybody's ducking me, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and it was clearly just for show. Uh, he wants more money for bigger fights, and like I said, I don't blame him. Uh, I don't quite—I still don't quite have a good feel on O'Malley. Some of his stuff I do. He is a—he's a very long bantamweight. He's tall and long for the division. He's got power. He's pretty good about his shot selection and finding openings. I think they haven't put him in there against a wrestler yet for a reason. I mean, who's he fought in the UFC? Hang on. Yeah, he's not fought... Like, the best guy he's fought in the UFC was Marlon Vera. And Vera stopped him. You know, since then he fought Thomas Almeida, who's washed. A guy who barely got into the UFC and he beat the crap out of him. And here, Paiva, who's... Not a top 15 bantamweight by, I think, any reasonable definition thereof. I don't know why he... I don't know why Paiva was ranked. I'm going to be candid. No idea. He was ranked at flyweight. Hang on. Which would be stupid, but he might have been. 
Why did he appear ranked? I don't know. That's really weird. Um, <laughs> I thought I saw him ranked some. Uh, huh. I mean, like I said, I don't think he is, but... <laughs> and he was moving up here, so he shouldn't have been ranked at flyweight. You know what? He might have been 15 at flyweight and then got bumped after Manal cop got ranked and they just carried over his listing for this fight for some reason uh, so it's not a bad win for O'Malley he's still kind of building and he's gonna have to fight a wrestler at some point and I th I am waiting to see how that goes I think anyone who's just you know do, does nothing but try to wrestle him will struggle, but someone who can mix things up, I think, will give him problems. But, you know, guy got a win. Uh, an emphatic win, so... He continues to do kind of what's expected. That was your main card. The Neil and Pontanibio fight... Somewhat against expectations. You know, those two are... Uh, I think we expected a better fight out of that. Not a great fight, but the other four fights, all pretty darn good. Uh, as for the prelims, Josh Emmett defeats Dan Ige via unanimous decision. 229-28-130-27. here from Sal D'Amato, the semi-sapient can of tomato soup that occasionally judges fights. That there's, n I don't object to Emmett winning. I gave Emmett the first and the third. There's no reason to give Emmett the second. Absolutely none. Like, that's just a bad scorecard. Uh, good enough win for Emmett, so he keeps kind of rolling at featherweight. Bantamweight fight. I'm going to wax a bit poetic here. Dominic Cruz defeats Pedro Munoz via unanimous decision. 29-28 across the boards. First couple of minutes of the first round, looking like a Cruz fight. He's a little bit... He's not quite... Like, he looked a little bit stiff. But was doing Dominic Cruz things, right? He was moving, he was countering, missing some punches because Cruz is... The way Cruz throws, when, especially when he kind of bumps his way in, he throws these big, looping, kind of... Uh, oh, what's the name for them? Crap. I forget what they're called. Um, they're almost like, uh, like Fade Overthrow, these kind of punches, from time to time. It's... Um, Do they call them, like, tentpole? Something like that? Punches? I, I forget, so forgive me. But he does... There's a reason he does that. It's not that the man can't throw a straight punch. He can. He does a lot. He loops those punches because he's kind of predicating that punch on the opponent moving or leaning a certain direction, and you arc them because it gives you, given the proximity of all parties, the best shot of finding them somewhere along the, uh, the trajectory of the blow. He was missing some of those because Munoz wasn't moving when he would try to bump his way in. He would kind of plant and look to throw back, or slip and then counter. A few minutes in, Cruz tries to, again, kind of switch, and then they call it a bump. Um, you kind of hop in, a little bit bend at the waist, uh, 
if you ever, it's a little bit like, um, there's a term for it in Lucha Libre, wrestling, professional wrestling. You kind of just bump them off your shoulder to get some momentum going. You kind of slide in like that, and then you operate from there. It's meant to kind of quickly change the stance and the angle and surprise your opponent, get in under their punches, etc., etc. And as Cruz is in this kind of hopping motion to get in, Munoz times a really nice left. It's not a hook. It's more just a straight jab. But because all of Cruz's weight is coming forward at the same time, you get you know the happy little force multiplier of two things coming together in a head-on collision. Cruz drops to his knees, a little bit stunned. He's, he joked afterward that he thought he slipped. Uh, Munoz all over him, hits another left hook along the fence line. That one dropped him. Um, Cruz grabs a single leg, hits a Peterson roll to just kind of try and stall things out which he does, he gets back to his feet, and somewhat remarkably, he wins the rest of that round pretty big. I mean, I shouldn't say pretty big, but definitively. Like, not enough to win the round, let me be clear. But you get dropped twice, even in an MMA, even in an, an MMA context, that can be grounds for a 10-8. You know, you can make the argument. Cruz absolutely removed any potential argument for this being a 10-8. The way he fought the last couple of last bit of this round, uh, he started kicking more, got more active, seemed to kind of wake up. Still loses the round, be clear, but that could have been 10-8 under different circumstances. Throwing that out there, rounds two and three are. Classic, if I might steal the Michael Coleism, vintage Dominic Cruz. Lots of movement, not as much as before. I think he got a better read on Pedro Munoz as this went on. So he's still mobile, but he's not quite as dancey as he usually is. Flicking his jab out, finding combinations, locking up Munoz with... Uh, Munoz, as this fight wore on, got... The second round in particular, He his activity dropped. He just kind of got locked up and mesmerized by what was going on. Third round, he got a little bit more back into it, but still a clear third round for Cruz. Rounds two and three, the best Cruz has looked in a while. Like, that was everything he used to be on the come up. Uh, Great movement, great shot selection, mixing things in to keep his opponent off balance. Uh, Making a miss, countering, just... Uh, chef's kiss, Dominic Cruz stuff in rounds two and three. Gets the win. Uh, probably the best Cruz... Look, Cruz didn't look great when he fought Casey Kenny. I didn't think it was as close as a split decision. But this was the first time he's really looked on form, probably since 2016 when he fought Faber. Uh, when he fought Garbrandt, he got out of sorts quickly because of what Garbrandt was doing. The Cejudo fight four years after that was what it was in some respects. Then you had the Kenny fight, which again, just didn't this, this here, you know, this was if you, depending on when you came into the sport, you might not understand why so many people really, really uh, hold Cruz's abilities in high regards. This fight would show you that. Uh, this was your fight of the night, and I think deservedly so. There were some other good fights, but I think this was your fight of the night. 
uh, momentum swings and uh, capped off by a wonderful performance. Uh, so I'm going to wax a little bit poetic here, but I'm going to say this about Dominic Cruz. I think because Dominic Cruz has been so successful for so long and achieved at such a high level, uh, we don't quite understand, and I don't, and I'm what I'm about to say is frequently used as a pejorative, and I'm not, I do not mean it that way. But Dominic Cruz is one of, is maybe the greatest overachiever in MMA history. What I mean by that is the following: when people talk about overachievers. It's people who, based on a certain set of attributes and skills, you might look at and go, here's their ceiling, and they exceed it. So I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it. What is dominant, what attribute, right? Not necessarily learned skill, but what attribute does Dominic Cruz have that you would want to take to build the perfect fighter, hypothetically? And people do this all the time. How do you build the perfect fighter? Well, they've got so-and-so's chin and so-and-so's right punch and -and so-and-so's left hook and -and so-and-so's wrestling and -and so-and-so's back-taking and -and so-and-so's front headlock sequence and Mirko Krokop's left leg and that kind of thing, right? What would you take from Dominic Cruz to build the perfect fighter? I mean, the man's got a great chin, it turns out. Because Munoz has hit people with those same kind of punches and they just go to sleep. Uh, and Cruz was you know, hurt by them, but you know, dude's got a chin. I mean, Garbrandt hit him with some serious punches and he got dropped, but he never you know, went out. And Garbrandt would put people to sleep. Still might if he hits them. He's got that kind of power. So he's got a chin, but you would what you would point to ultimately is something like his footwork or his fight IQ, something like that. And it's not that fight IQ is not a valuable thing, but one, I might actually take John Jones's over his because John, I don't know of too many fighters who make fewer mistakes in the cage than John Jones, compounded by the myriad of mistakes he makes outside the cage, but that's a different topic. But just when was the last time you watched a John Jones fight and he's making mistakes, right? doesn't all that often, if ever. And certainly very rarely in sequence. So, again, what would you take from him? You know? His cardio? He's got good cardio, but I think you can find... I think you can find others who are comparable or better, potentially. I'm not going to give you a list here. I'm just talking here. But you know, what attribute would you take? Not punching power. Not kicking power. He's got good kicking, but, you know... He doesn't have great punching power. His wrestling? His better takedown artists? His submission game? I don't think he's got a submission to his name. Let me double check that real fast. I don't want to be a complete goober about that. Uh, his last submission win... He's got one. He submitted a, fe- a fellow named Juan Miranda in 2006 to win the vacant promotional Total Combat lightweight title. Since then, uh, decision, knockout, decision, decision, technical decision, decision, TKO, decision, 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 knocked out to K. Mizugaki, decision. Yeah, one. So I'm not saying the man couldn't choke the average person out, but if you're, again, would you rate his jujitsu as a high-end weapon? 
you know, he's, he's not Charles Oliveira, he's not or Fabricio Verdum, you know, pick your jiu-jitsu operator, right? He's not those guys. He's not, uh, he's not a power puncher, pretty clearly. I, I say that not to be dismissive, but he's not got a lot of punching power. So what does this guy have that you would think, you would look at him and go, best bantamweight of all time, which I think he is. The answer is just not, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot there in terms of like the, just the raw material. So what has he done? He has figured out how to win in spite of limitations uh, that, that he has to deal with. Okay, I can't hit hard. How do I deal with that? I'm tough, but I don't want to get hit a lot. How do I deal with that? I, I'm not a great control wrestler. How do I? I use takedowns for points and to disrupt every to disrupt my opponent. This is a guy who, for all that he has achieved, and he has achieved legendary status. Every, the vast majority of the steps he's taken along the way, he has been overachieving relative to most measurable uh, attributes. And that needs to be said out loud because it's important. Not every overachiever is Kenny Florian. I don't mean, again, overachiever is used as a pejorative sometimes. Yeah, Kenny Florian. Yeah, didn't have a whole lot, but, you know, he got the most out of what he had, got a title shot, got beat up by BJ Penn. Like, had nothing for Penn in that fight. He had two lightweight title fights, actually. He fought Sean Shirk for the, when they brought the division back. It was him and Shirk. You know, he got controlled by Sean Shirk, you know, but he had a good little career. He's an overachiever. No. This needs to be said. You can overachieve and still achieve great things. That, and that needs to be said. It really does. And it is not said enough. Not every one is, you know, Francis and God. You're not either an overachiever and you're, I'm going to say Kenny Florian again. I apologize. I'm not trying to insult the man at all. But, you know, you might be a guy who gets a couple of, earns a couple of token title shots and you don't ever get cl- get really close to winning it. Or you're gifted with natural attributes that are refined through training and whatnot that turn you into, you know, John Jones or Francis Ngannou or pick your Cain Velasquez. Like, I don't pick whoever you want, right? Some of these people that are just destined for greatness. You can overachieve and be an all-time great. And that needs to be said. Because I don't think it's said enough. And I'm Dominic Cruz is one of my favorite fighters to watch. I love watching that man fight. And if you don't like the guy because of his personality, I'm not here to advocate for that. Right? Your fandom is your own. I'm not going to police it. But it does need to be noted. 
that what he has accomplished relative to what you might think his skill set is in a lot of respects is overachieving on a level that rendered him, that made him great amongst people who by all rights were destined for it so just because you don't have you might have a different road if you're having to overcome a lack of certain attributes but do not take overachieving as a pejorative and do not take overachieving to mean that all you get is, you know, a couple of token shots at the top or maybe a, a miracle once or twice. You know, Matt Serra became UFC welterweight champion. That's certainly an overachievement relative to who Matt Serra was as a fighter for the vast majority of his career. Dominic Cruz is the, my opinion, the greatest bantamweight of all time. And he overachieved to become that relative to all the roadblocks. And that's not just the physic that's not just the injuries and the layoffs. It's part of that. But it's just, he doesn't hit hard. He doesn't kick all that hard. I'm sure it's not fun. But, you know, are there harder kickers? Yeah. The harder punchers? Yeah. Better wrestlers? Yeah. Uh, you know, guys with better cardio? Maybe. He's certainly elite tier in that respect, but cardio is a thing that you can, to a large degree, not to not in totality, but to a large degree, you can train. He just refused to accept the presupposed limitations that should have been placed on him. And the result in his case was not just a good career, it is true greatness. So, it just needs to be said. I, I think we over... And this, is, this is true for a lot of things. While it is true that someone who is naturally gifted... In their, in their sport or in their profession, whatever it happens to be, is remarkable and those should be watched and they should be celebrated. We should not discount and overlook people who achieve greatness through nothing but hard work and overachieving. And I think too often we just assume that once a fighter, athlete, whatever, reaches a certain level, that they're no longer overachieving, that some of their success was always self-evident. Cain Velasquez becoming heavyweight champion was always kind of self-evident. You watched that guy fight, you went, him. You know, to a, to a similar degree, Junior Dos Santos becoming heavyweight champion, that man tore through the heavyweight division getting to the belt. I mean, he wrecked people. That stands out. Some guys do. Some guys... Some guys achieve true greatness, and, we've and we just stop wanting to give them credit for being an overachiever because we still think of it as an insult. Stop that. Don't do that. Uh, Dominic Cruz is a historic overachiever if you look at what he ha what he has to work with physically and what he accomplished 
That's as close as I get to motivational speaking, I suppose. Um, after the fight, I don't think we're going to get it, but I would still very much love to watch Jose Aldo and Dominic Cruz. I think Aldo's looking for a fight that will secure him a title shot, depending on how things work out at the top of Bantamweight. So, and I think Cruz would just be fighting a bit too far down in the ranks for that to be reasonable at this point. But I really want to see that fight. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of other bantamweights he could fight that would be great fights. You know, he was, what, nine coming into this, Munoz was eight, so he's going to bump up, Garbrandt's going to drop down. You know, look, tell me Dominic Cruz and Rob Font wouldn't be a great fight. Tommy Cruz and Sandhagen wouldn't be a great fight. I don't know that... Uh, so, he could fight pretty much anyone ranked above him. They might try to do a Cruz and Garbrandt rematch. And at this point in time... I don't know. I do not know. Uh, but, like I said, I want to see... The guy who watched those two men when they were killing it in the blue cage... Uh, for the the WEC promotion when that existed. Seeing the guy who was the featherweight destroyer and, and god king of featherweight in Jose Aldo, and the man who ruled bantamweight in Dominic Cruz, seeing those two square up, I would just like to see it. That's all I'm saying. Uh, okay, next up. Uh, Tai Tuivasa defeats Augusto Sakai via knockout punches, 26 seconds of the second round. Not a great fight. I don't have a whole lot to say here. Um, Sakai just, I don't know, he can't pull the trigger anymore. I don't know. I, he looked good for a while, but he has fallen off a cliff. Um, one of your breakout guys for 2021, believe it or not, Bruno Silva, who was kept at, who was kept out of the UFC... Uh, he was signed... When was it? Um, he was actually signed in May of 19. Um, but USADA messed him up. And... God, USADA. I don't want to... I don't want to get on that. I don't want to get on that horse at the moment. Finally debuts in June of this year. And... Three fights in a row, three finishes. He knocks out Wellington Terman in the first. TKO's Andrew Sanchez in the third round. And last night, TKO's Jordan Wright 90 seconds into the first round. Technically 88, but I don't mind rounding there. Um, we're going to get to another Brazilian standout from this year in our next fight. But Bruno Silva, man. You're a middleweight in the UFC. That guy's a problem. That guy's a real problem. He's a big guy for the division. Got good power, good shot selection. He's gritty. If you watch his fight with Andrew Sanchez, he was down two rounds and came back to win that fight. That's a problem right there. Pay attention to that guy. So that was the, um, you know, that was part of the prelims, the early prelims. One of the other middleweight Brazilian standouts to come out of this year, Andre Muniz defeats Eric Anders via armbar 313 of the first. Now, Muniz had fought in the UFC before this year. Uh, he fought once in 19, once in 20. But 2021, he broke Jacare Souza's arm with an armbar. 
earlier back in May. Hits basically the same armbar here on Eric Anders. Anders taps, whereas Souza was like, yeah, sure, break it. <laughs> uh, you know, Andre Muniz has had a darn good year, uh, as far as that goes. Um, both of those gentlemen might appear on my breakout fighter of 2021. I don't know where exactly. I'm not entirely sure who's taking the top spot either. I think I know, but... I got to double check a few things on that. And in fairness to Breakout for 2021, you know, this upcoming fight night, I'm not trying to uh, transition yet, but uh, Chris Dawkins um, debuted late last year. Uh, debuted last year, sorry, for the UFC. Fought twice this year. If he caps off 2021 by beating Derek Lewis, he's going to be somewhere on that list. But Muniz, a uh, nice armbar here. Just Muniz, another guy at middleweight who people are going to duck because there's not a lot of name value in beating him, and he is dangerous. Uh, women's flyweight, Aaron Blanchfield defeated Miranda Maverick for unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Pretty even on the feet. Uh, might even have leaned towards Maverick there. But every time they tied up and they got to the ground, Blanchfield's top control, her passing, uh, domination on the ground. Blanchfield won uh, one of the EBIs a few years ago. Um, so, And I saw it. I can't remember exactly which one it was, uh, the, numer the number, but I watched, I was watching that event. I used, to, I missed the, I missed the EBI, man. I liked their rule set. But, you know, as soon as the Danaher Death Squad guys started winning all the time and it no longer became a decent promotional vehicle for selling 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu, Eddie decided to do something else. Um, yeah, good win for Blanchfield here. Uh, she's really good on the ground. That's someone we should be paying attention to at Flyweight. Featherweight, Ryan Hall defeats Derek Minner via unanimous decision. 30-27 twice, 129-27. Uh, I don't object to 29-27. That gives Minner one of the rounds. I forget which round could have been his. Uh, the first... Might have give, I gave him one. I might have given him the first. But giving uh, Hall a 10-8, what, third? Yeah, a 10-8 third round for Hall, totally justifiable. Uh, no issues there. Pretty good stuff from Hall overall. He's still got some funky entities that are going to get him hurt. But Minner couldn't quite capitalize on them. Uh... The way Hall closed out the third, a lot of mount work. He had some really nice triangle sequences in the third round. Uh, some of them he had the legs backwards. And I'm not sure why. Um, it might have been for control purposes. It might have been trying to transition to another move. Look, I am not going to sit here and even remotely second question Ryan Hall's jujitsu skills and decisions. Like That man has forgotten more about how to grapple than I will ever know at this point. Uh, it was just an odd thing that I observed, and I assume he had a reason for it, so. Uh, but it had some decent leg attacks. Third round, he spends most of it in mount. Like, once he decided, okay, I'm not gonna play around with the legs too much and just went for more conventional jujitsu choices, it passed like butter almost, you know, full mount, long time there looking for an arm triangle. I thought he had more chances to really secure it than he took. Again, he might have been feeling something that I couldn't see. But 
little bit weird in that respect, but a good win for Ryan Hall. I like watching that guy fight. It's weird, it's different, and as MMA tends to be a bit more homogenized at this point in time, I, I will take that. And kicking off the main card, Jillian Robertson defeats Priscilla Cachuea via rear naked choke, 459 of the first. The UFC needs to cut Priscilla Cachuea. Not only is she not good, she missed weight here. She weighed 129. You missed by three pounds for the non-title fight. That's, that's not good. Then, when it came to the finishing sequence, Robertson gets the back, gets the choke, and... You can see what Cachoeira does. She reaches back with her right hand, and she just thumbs Robertson in the eye. Robertson doesn't... You know, the referee kind of gives her a bit of a knock-it-off. Robertson gets away from the thumb, and then she does it again! Like, in full view of the camera, and I get that you're getting choked. And... As a... I don't know, last-ditch kind of self-defense move, okay, you thumb the eye. But in the context of being a professional fighter, to do it deliberately twice... No! This woman should not be in the UFC. She never should have been in the UFC. Like, she came in because she's a sparring partner of Jessica Andrade. In her first fight, she gets just obliterated by Shevchenko, uh, Valentina. Like, she lost her first three fights. None of them were close. Uh, she wins a couple of fights against eh, iffy opposition. Uh, the totality of her performance here, from the weight miss, to being a bad fighter, to flagrant, blatant, dirty techniques, to try and get out of a choke, in full view of the referee and everyone else, No. Cut this woman, and frankly, if you're another promoter, I would not sign her. Not after this. Uh, shame on her for that for what she did there. I'm not going to shame her for the weight miss, necessarily. I don't like it. I never do. But you had full control over whether or not you were trying to eye-gouge someone. And you made that choice. So, no. Go away. Never come back. All right, that was UFC 269. So, for your post-fight bonuses. These are hilarious. I'm going to just... I'm not going to go too deep into fighter pay here. We're two hours in. Another card... To, we got a whole other card to preview. I'm not going to get too deep on this, but... The UFC is probably going to generate a billion dollars in revenue this year. And they throw out a $50,000 bonus once or tw a few times. Uh, it was a wonderful piece by, um, who was it? Uh, let me see if I can, let me see if I can find that, because, uh, I, I want to quote the author appropriately here. Ah, uh, yeah, Ben Folks. <laughs> wrote this uh, wonderful piece about fighter pay and the idiots who make arguments about it over at co-main event. Uh, read it if you haven't. You can, I'm sure you can find it. Uh, but the UFC wants to keep fighter pay at less than 20% of total yearly revenue. 
and they are happy to do a lot of things that make sure that happens. So they're they're making hundreds of millions, if not this year, probably going to be a billion dollar year, probably. And the fighters, the product, they're still out here. This got brought up because Dana White went on one of his rants about, no, UFC fighters are paid better. The average UFC fighter is paid better than the average boxer. And, you know, we pay our guys really, really well. And then you, you get to the top of the heap, the Rondas, the Connors, the Khabibs, and even the John Joneses, they make, you know, they make comparable boxing money. When a few months ago, Dana White said John Jones is insane for wanting Deontay Wilder money. You can't have that both ways, you hypocrite. I also love that, you know, his mention about guys who make good money in MMA features two retired fighters. And no, top-end boxers make way more than top-end MMA fighters. It's re There's no argument here. None. No argument. There is no actual argument about fighter pay anymore. We know it. The UFC's admitted to it. Anytime when they are... When documents admit it. Uh, they've said it in court. Every Every investment firm that researches the UFC says it. Everyone says it. The, you, you know what this is like? This is like... Uh, this is like putting... I shouldn't say putting a gun against somebody's head. But... If you give someone truth serum... And say, are you doing X? And they say, yes, we're doing X. And then... Once or twice a year, that same person says, no... You, sh you shouldn't worry about us doing... We're not doing X. And a segment of the people believe them. It's ridiculous. Every time the UFC has to answer this question when it matters... Or when anyone who researches this objectively looks into it, the answer is the same. Fighters in MMA in the UFC are paid less than 20% of yearly revenue. That's it. Full stop. They're underpaid. So, anyway. I promise I wouldn't get too deep into that. Bonuses. Point being. They're giving the same $50,000 bonus they've been giving for... What, a decade? <laughs> Meanwhile, they're... Uh, rolling in cash, so... Uh, fight of the Night, I mentioned. Dominic Cruz, Pedro Munoz, no issues. Performances, there are several. Charles Oliveira, Juliana Pena, Kai Kara-France, Sean O'Malley, Tai Tuivasa, and Bruno Silva. Would not have given Sean O'Malley one, personally. I wouldn't have given Tuivasa one, either, to be candid. But, I don't make those decisions... No issue with Oliveira you know, and Pena. Slam dunk. Absolutely. Cara France, easy. I don't object to Bruno Silva getting one either. Again, just not a fan of... Wouldn't have done it, but I don't run the UFC. I run this podcast, and with varying degrees of low-level success, I suppose. <laughs> anyway, that was UFC 269. You can read my full report in the MMAZona411mania.com. I thank you very much if you do so. To the people who stopped by live, I appreciate you more than you know. Uh, I Again, I do live play-by-play -play over in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania for these things. And the comment zone is usually a little bit dead. I think a lot of the people that were watching MMA for a while when I started doing this have kind of fallen away from it. 
411's a more professional wrestling-oriented website anyway. But I, I do thank all of you who stopped by and brightened my day just a little bit when you uh, leave comments for my MMA coverage. Uh, also, <laughs> uh, the the account that is allegedly the Iron Sheik was there and giving us updates on the Ring of Honor Final Battle event. So thank you very much, Sheiky. Uh, all right, let's move on. Let's preview the last event for the UFC of 2021. I told you all this was going to be long. This preview shouldn't take that long, at least. But UFC on ESPN plus 57. Main event. Derek Lewis versus Chris Dawkins. You know, I don't hate this fight. I mean, it's heavyweight, so, you know, there is certainly some kind of adverse reaction, but uh, I don't hate it. I don't hate the fight. Uh, what did Derek Lewis do recently? Hang on. Uh, he got stopped by Serial Gone earlier this year, Yeah, back in August. That was a bad night for him, man. Gone took him to the woodshed. He had a rough first round against Curtis Blades, too, and then knocked, came back knocked him out in the second. Yeah, he had a four-fight winning streak snapped by Gon. Uh, whereas Dawkus is undefeated in the UFC. Uh, three, four fights in four fights in the UFC, four finishes. I like Chris Dawkus here, and I'm going to give you a few reasons. One, he's a faster heavyweight. Two, Derek Lewis doesn't do well with people that strike with him. That might sound crazy, but look at the tape on the man. Anybody who is a competent striker who strikes with him usually wins. It's weird because the man hits very, very hard. But so much of what makes him successful is dealing with people not trying to strike with him. Alexander Volkov beat the crap out of him before he got caught with the haymaker. Mark Hunt beat the crap out of him. He's a, he's a scary knockout artist in a lot of respects, but if you look at the people that he's beaten, Blades beat him up until Blades tried to wrestle. Alexi Olenek, yeah, tried to wrestle him. Ilya Latifi tried to wrestle him. I thought Latifi won that fight, by the way. Blagoy Ivanov tried to wrestle him. JDS struck with him, not stopped him in the second round. Daniel Cormier, okay, Cormier out-wrestled him. Not surprising, Daniel Cormier. Volkov beat him up. He beat Francis in that weird fight where neither of them engaged. One of the worst fights ever. You know, fought Mark Hunt. What did Mark Hunt do? Mark Hunt struck with him happily, beat the crap out of him. Travis Brown tried to wrestle him, got knocked out. Like That's kind of the pattern here. If you're willing to strike with the guy, I'm not saying it's easy. It's very much not. But he actually struggles with strikers. You try to grapple the guy and wrestle him, he knows how to deal with that. And he does quite competently for the most part. Dawkins is going to strike with him, I think. Might do some clinch work and dirty boxing, but he's not going to be shooting doubles. Uh, three, I think Dawkins has a better gas tank. 
and I think he might be able to force a pace that Lewis can't maintain. Look, Lewis might land a good punch and might knock him out. I'm not saying, I'm not telling you to bet your mortgage on this or anything, but I like Dawkins here. Fast hands, willing to strike, lighter on his feet. I think Lewis is going to be in trouble here. I really do. I'm picking Dawkins there. Co-main event, Stephen Thompson and Bilal Muhammad. Uh, kind of an important fight for Wonderboy here. Coming off a loss to Gilbert Burns. Muhammad's not quite the takedown artist that Burns is, but he's more than willing to wrestle and clinch up to ice rounds. Like, Muhammad will grind. Um, at the apex for this event. I mean, Muhammad's on a long winning streak. His last loss was to Jeff Neal in 2019. He's on a really good run. Making him at the apex, which does affect this. I'm still going to lean towards Thompson. I'm just going to be prepared to be very, very wrong about this. Um, yeah, that, that's where I am at the moment. So, probably a foolish pick on my part, and I acknowledge that at the moment. Muhammad's very good, and like I said, by a lot of logic, he should win. He's younger. He's in a better position career-wise. He's willing to fight in different ranges. Uh, probably should win. I'm still going to pick against him because I don't think we've seen him deal with anyone as mobile as Thompson. And maybe I'm still a little bit too sentimentally attached to Wonderboy. But that's where we are at the moment. Okay, the rest of these should be quicker to predict, so can hopefully get out of here before too much longer. Uh, Amanda Lemos and Angela Hill, women's strawweight. Lemos lost her UFC debut against Leslie Smith. That, however, was... I think that was up at Bantamweight, right? Need to double-check that. Yeah. She's here at, she cut back down to straw weight after that, because that's her natural weight class. Has won four in a row. Uh, three finishes. This is a step up for her, though. Angela Hill is much better than... Much better might be a switch, but a, a definite step up for Lemos. Hill coming off a loss to Tisha Torres. I'm going to lean towards Lemos here, but Hill's a stern test for pretty much anybody. Um, Bantamweight, this is a pretty good fight, actually. Rafael Asensau and Ricky Simone. Asensau's been out since the Cody Garbrandt knockout in June of 2020, so, well, year and a half. On a three-fight losing streak, somewhat mitigated by being by those losses being Marlon Merdice, Corey Sandhagen. The Garbrandt loss, though, that looms pretty gnarly. Um, Simone, by contrast, on a three-fight winning streak. Brian Kelleher last time. This is a... Asensau might be ranked lower than Simone. Let me double-check that real fast. Um, Simone ranked at all? Asensau's ranked 12. Ricky Simone is not ranked. Okay. Uh, Austin Sal might seem to be going in the wrong direction career-wise. This is a big step up for Simone. 
I'm still going to pick him. I think he'll be able to out-wrestle Austin Sow, and Ricky Simone has a motor. Now, he's not quite Marab Wallace, really, but he's he's up there. Now, I'm going to lean towards Simone here, but that's a pretty important fight for both gentlemen. Lightweight, Mateus Gamrod and Carlos Diego Fajaya. This is a surprisingly good fight. Uh, Gamrod lost first time ever in his UFC debut when he dropped a split decision. Since then, he knocked out Scott Holtzman with punches and Kimura Jeremy Stevens. Um, he's a really good grappler. Of course, so is Carlos Diego Fajaya, who is... Uh, he, uh, he's a jiu-jitsu guy. Let's see, they're at lightweight. Fajaya's back at lightweight? He's missed twice. His last fight, he weighed 160, and Gregor Gillespie still beat the crap out of him. I could have sworn they were making him fight at welterweight. Hmm. Two misses, though, is a big problem, especially his last one. He weighed, like I said, 160 and a half. That's a big miss. I'm going to lean towards Gamrat here. I think Fahea might be on the downside. But we'll have to see. That's a good fight. Featherweight. Weird fight here. Cub Swanson and Darren Elkins. A weird fight, man. Uh, Swanson was last seen at the Reyes and Prochka event on May 1st, getting stopped with the uh, body kick by Giga. Um, Elkins, by contrast, on a two-fight winning streak, Per usually got the crap beat out of him in the first round of both of those. I'm going to pick Cub Swanson here. I'm kind of to the point where I can't pick Darren Elkins. I think he's still going to win fights, but I can't pick him to win. I mean, Cub's real long in the tooth as well, but I think Cub's going to do some damage to him. Uh, he might persevere and still get the win, might Elkins, but I'm going with Swanson. As for the prelims, middleweight, Dustin Stoltzfus and Gerald Merchart. I feel okay picking Merchart here. On a two-fight winning streak, his win over Mahmoud Muradov was a big one. Muradov I still think quite highly of as a prospect. Um, but he gassed himself out trying to finish Merchart, and Merchart made him pay. Um, yeah, going with Merchart. Bantamweight, Honey Barcelos and Victor Henry. Honey Barcelos. With the UFC for a while, actually. Um, sorry, not a while. A lot of fights I mean, since 2018. Lost to Timur Valley. That was a pretty good fight. I'm gonna pick Barcelos here. Um, heavyweight. God, there's two of them. There's another one further down. God, why? <laughs> uh, heavyweight. Justin Taffa and Harry Hunsucker. Taffa's in kind of a must-win scenario here. One and three in the UFC, not good. Uh, Hunsucker lost to Taito Ivasa. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Taffa, but this is kind of do or die for him. Women's flyweight: Sajara Eubanks and Melissa Gatto. Boy, they are throwing Eubanks a gimme here. Um, Eubanks coming off of a win. But um, yeah, I'm picking Eubanks, but 
Yeah, I, I'm not exactly high on her upside at this point. Featherweight, Charles Jordan and, and Andre Ewell. That's not bad. Um, Ewell on a two-fight losing streak, two and two in his last four. Jordan lost to Julian Arosa. Hmm. I'm going to go with Jordan here, but that could go either way. Women's bantamweight, Raquel Pennington and Macy Chasson. Pennington, surprisingly, on a two-fight winning streak. Wins over Marion Renault and Penny Kianzad. I think Chasson's going to win this. Chasson's on a two-fight winning streak. Only got one loss in her entire career. Yeah, I'm, I'm... This is a... This is a decent test for Chasson, but I expect her to pass it. Heavyweight, Dante Mays and Josh Parisian. A Parisian? I think Parisian. Um... Dante Mays is 1-2 in the UFC. Beat Roque Martinez. Got that fight. This fight sucks. <laughs> There's no winner. There's only losers here. <laughs> Kicking everything off. Matt Sales against Jordan Levitt. Um, Sales, been 50-50. Been out over a year. Almost. He's been out over two years by the time this fight will happen. He last... He was last seen being hit with a twister by Bryce Mitchell in December of 19. Levitt, I believe, is 1-1 one one in the UFC. I'm going to double-check and make sure he's who I'm thinking of. I'm pretty sure he is. Record. Yeah, yeah, he's 8-1. Um, coming off of a loss to Claudio Pules. Pulas has turned out to be pretty darn good. Um, I'm going to pick Levitt here, but Levitt still has a lot of proving to do. His UFC debut, he beat old Matt Wyman via slam knockout. Um, so Levitt's got some... He's got some proving to do. Was, uh, I mean, it's not like Sales is in a great place either. There's a lot of fight out of don't know why I care about this, but... Um, fight's out of Syndicate. Yeah, I'm going to pick Levitt, but... He's still a work in progress in a lot of respects. So, alright. Well, Saturday, December 18th, we will... I will have coverage of this over in the... Uh, MMAZona411mania.com. So, please do stop by, say hello if you're so inclined. I appreciate it. Alright. Let me check Twitter very quickly to see if anything crazy's happened, and if not, I will do plugs as quickly as possible and let you out of here. Alright, nothing crazy on Twitter related to MMA. There's always crazy stuff on Twitter, though. Uh, okay, plugs. I don't do this very often because... reasons? But I mentioned if I'm going to be opening the floor up for questions and you wish to follow me on Twitter, I am at WinfreeMMA, that's W-I-N-F-R-E-E-M-M-A. I promise not to flood your feed with anything uh, too crazy. I'm I'm a very sedate follow, I promise. <laughs> I mean, look, Fight Night, I retweet clips of finishes and whatnot sometimes with my thoughts, but I, I'm not going to flood your feed with stuff. Uh, so if you're curious and you would like to contribute to the question period for the next episode, feel free to give me a follow and ask away. I'm happy to answer questions feel weird plugging my Twitter. I just do. 
right, what do I have? Uh, last week. Last week, I was part of a TV party reviewing the Netflix adaptation of Cowboy Bebop. That was myself, Mark Radulich, Alexis Haina, and David Wright. Uh, we talked about that show, the good, the bad, the ugly, and found things good, bad, and ugly to talk about. So if you're interested in that, it's over on the W2M network. That's where most of my other podcasting endeavors take place at the moment. So give that a listen. Um, I've heard of anything else last week. No, some re-airs. Nothing really. Okay, this week, I have this week mostly off. There is a Damn You Hollywood for the Steven Spielberg West Side Story. Uh, that will be coming out tomorrow. I'm not on it, but you should listen to it anyway because Damn You Hollywood is a wonderful program for all your movie review needs. Um, I think mostly this upcoming week it's just going to be... And there's a bunch of re-airs of stuff, but I don't plug my re-airs here. Um, unless you want me to, I guess. suppose. I, I could if you're interested. Let me know. <laughs> um, so just my spate of usual coverage. AEW's Dark Elevation on Friday... MLW, I don't know if this is going to be Wednesday or Thursday. This last episode of Fusion Alpha moved to Thursday. I know their next limited series, which is how they're structuring these things now, is going to be their like MLW Azteca thing, and that's going to be on Thursday. So I don't know if this will be Wednesday or Thursday. Whenever it comes out, I will review it. Friday, WWE SmackDown. And then Saturday, UFC on ESPN plus 57. That's my coverage stuff. Those are in the wrestling or MMA zones of 411mania.com if you're interested. And I hope you are. That's it for me. Long podcast. Hope you are hope you just will have been happy to bear with me. 269, a lot of stuff to unpack. So next week, review of UFC on ESPN uh, plus 57. Now, our next event isn't until January 15th. So let me pull up my calendar real fast. So next week we'll have a review. The 26th, we might be off. But I don't like taking that much time off. Because we could theoretically be off the 26th and the 2nd. Hmm. I'm going to leave this open just a little bit. I will, let me, let me do this. If anything crazy news-wise breaks, or uh, elsewise, there will be a normal episode. If not, one of those two, I will have something up here for you to listen to. Um, I put together... I might still have the notes for that, actually. There was a down period of time in 2020 where I wanted to keep content out... So I did some, like, um, profiles. Right, so, um, uh, like retrospectives on fighters. And I had one most of the way done for Josh Barnett. So I might be able to finish that one. Again, with two weeks off, I'll... I will almost certainly find something to put up there on one of those weeks. So I hope you'll just kind of bear with that being a little bit open-ended at the moment. We will be back for certain on the 9th of January, 2022, to preview UFC on ESPN plus 58. Calvin Cater and Giga Chikadze, that's a good fight. How does that fight look, by the way, at the moment? Rosario Bontuin and Brandon Royville is not a bad fight. Court McGee's fighting, and I've got a soft spot for Court McGee. 
Joaquin Buckley and Abdul Razak Al-Hassan is probably going to produce a body. Muslim Salikov and Michelle Pereja. My, that's a crazy fight. Okay, there's some stuff on there. Don't get me wrong. There's some ye. There's a little bit of ye on there. Uh, yeah, there's oof. Yeah, there's some stuff that I'm not looking forward to, but there's some good stuff there. They, they can put together a decent main card. So, we'll have that to be previewed for certain on January 9th. Until next time, back here next week, we might have some more clarity next week by the time the show rolls around, too. So, hopefully that. All right. I'm out of here. You're out of here. Thank you very much for listening. As always, thank you for like all of your likes, comments, subscriptions, reviews, shares. All of it helps. Thank you again, everyone. Hope you're having a good uh, Christmas season. Hopefully I don't offend anyone with that. Uh, until next time, as always, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>